This week on Amazing But True. The catcher, number 31, Mike Piazza. (sighs) Here are favorite memories from Mike's time with the Mets and our chat with the Hall of Fame catcher. It's all next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing But True. Orange Blue. Amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks, it's out of here. We got you. Welcome to Amazing But True, a New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Jake Brown, alongside my co-host, former Mets pitcher and Emmy Award winner, Nelson Figueroa. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where you can rate us five stars and write a nice review. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcast. The only Mets hitter. In the Hall of Fame, the legend, my childhood hero, Mike Piazza, joins the show today. So let's get episode three rolling. Well, Figgy, this was supposed to be our big season preview. Thursday was going to be the Mets home opener. Me and Papa Brown were going to go to our 18th straight Mets home opener. I'm sure you would have been there. Everyone would have been there. But obviously, coronavirus has put other plans. The season is on delay. The season is on pause. And we'll talk about that in coming weeks. But today is a special show, Figgy. We talk with a guy, my favorite Met of all time, my favorite athlete of all time. The reason I was a Mets fan beginning in 99 and starting in the 2000 season, my first full year, Mike Piazza, the legend, the greatest inning catcher of all time and the greatest Met of all time joins the show. And I know you could speak for me and you that we are very excited for this interview. Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, that's one of the things that growing up, a Met fan, born in Brooklyn, and when they made that trade and brought in a superstar, superstar in the prime of his career, it changed the face of the franchise, and it gave you hope as a Mets fan moving forward. I, unfortunately, had to put on a uniform of a different color and face him several times, but hey, all's well that ends well, and uh, so excited to have a chance to talk with Mike today. And he didn't homer versus you, but he went three for six, so he hit 500 versus you, which was around the league-wide average of what hitters hit against uh, Nelson Figueroa in the big leagues, I think, in his in his time. <laughs> Some of the moments that he had, Figgy, he had some classic moments from the 9-11 homer to the 3-1 homer to cap the 10-run inning to the homer off Trevor Hoffman in 99, the walk-off in the bottom of the ninth, to the Clemens Piazza bat situation. There are countless Mike Piazza memories with the Mets. He's the only hitter from the Mets that is in the Hall of Fame with a Mets cap on. You know, I salute you, Mike Piazza, for making me a Mets fan, for all the memories of my childhood, things that I forgot from last week. I remember random moments of your time with the Mets. So every Mets fan I could speak for appreciates you and everything that you did in the community after 9-11 and the tragedy. And Figgy, we're both New Yorkers, and we could attest to just how important of an athlete he was and how important of an icon he was to not just the Mets, but to baseball and to New York in general. If you're a New Yorker, you loved and appreciated the Mike Piazza era. To have that burden placed on you, just to play baseball in New York is a difficult task. But then to be told, hey, this franchise rides on your shoulders, everyone in the city seeing him and realizing this is the guy who's going to carry us to the promised land. This is a guy who there's so many high expectations and he did it so gracefully, you know, and, and that was one thing that I took away from the Piazza era is that he never backed down from a challenge. Anytime there was a big moment, he seemed to rise 
rise to the occasion. And not a lot of players can do that. And and, and that kind of expectation, the, what he did mainly was he attracted all that attention and it kind of let the team uh, be themselves. You were able to get to the playoffs and get to the World Series without having a superstar player at every position and putting together a dream team. Mike Piazza was that guy that really was the straw that stirred the drink for many, many years. And I know he wouldn't do it. And we asked him about it, Figgy. I know he wouldn't be the backup, but man, I wish he was a part of that 2006 Mets team. Imagine if it was Carlos Delgado, Carlos Beltran, Mike Piazza, and everyone on that team, Pedro and Mike being teammates. And, and he'll talk about his relationship or lack thereof with Pedro, where they were <laughs> rivals kind of, and they wanted to beat each other. They were the best of the best. And imagine if Mike was on that 06 team. I know there's Mets fans listening to this who are salivating, not only salivating from how bored they are during this quarantine and how thirsty they are right now. Everyone's dropping, like we say, thirst traps in this time because everyone's, you know, either by themselves or they're quarantined and chilling with their significant other. They know how salivating of a thought that was. If Piazza would have been part of the 99, the 2000, the 2001, and then the 2006 Mets, who knows? Maybe that Mets team doesn't get a curveball to Carlos Beltran. Maybe there is no Game 7. Maybe the New York Mets win the 2006 World Series with Mike Piazza. What if, Figgy? What if? Hey, one swing of the bat can change it all, and that's what Mike Piazza did each and every at-bat. And Figgy has met Mike Piazza several times. I met him one time, and I met him at his book signing in Long Island back in my Hofstra days, around 2013 maybe. It might have been 2014. And I said one thing to him. I was nervous as hell, and I said to him, Mike, you made my childhood legendary. And now, Figgy, I get to say a little bit more to him as the Hall of Fame catcher, number 31, longtime Met, first-time guest, Mike Piazza joins the program next right here on Amazing But True with the New York Post. And joining us now, it is the man of the hour, Baseball Hall of Famer, Mets Hall of Famer, the greatest hitting catcher of all time, the 62nd round pick by the Dodgers. Somehow this guy had over 1,000 players drafted before him and then went on and hit 396 homers as a catcher. Eight seasons with the Mets, seven with the Dodgers. He has his book, Long Shot Out, which you can go get wherever you get books. I read it. It might be the last book I read in years. That shows you how much I read books. And Mike Piazza, my childhood hero, I will say, favorite all-time Met for a lot of people my age. Mike, we appreciate you doing during this troubling time in our country right now, taking a few minutes to chat with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, under the circumstances, we all have to, we got to all talk it out. So good to talk some ball and among other things, but generally it's, uh, it's a challenging time and just continuing to pray that things are turned around and we could eventually get back to uh, regular life. And Mike, you are the manager of the Italian national baseball team. This has to hit home for you, you know, being Italian, being from Italy and, you know, having family there and friends there and your team there. Have you talked to people back home? How is everyone doing? How is your family doing personally? Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult situation. And I've been more or less living over there for about three years. I put my kids in school in Parma, which is one of the worst hit areas right as of today. They found out there was something like 115, I think, new cases in Parma. And we were talking a little bit before we started. It's just, you know, people keep forgetting that Italy is an older country and, and the infrastructure just was not prepared to handle this. You know, older buildings, older hospitals, a lot of the population smoked. So a lot of them have, you know, the, those secondary uh, conditions that make it worse. Uh, and it's a shame. It's really, really sad. And, and obviously life is just on hold there and people don't know what to do. And it's, it's very frustrating. And I will say that people are being strong and they're doing the best they can. But of course, you know, this thing wears on you. And I just hope and pray that the weather gets better and that the virus does calm down. You know, we flatten the curve and we get people back to, uh, you know, slowly back to life. 
Hey, Mike, it's Nelson Figueroa. I just wanted to say, first off, how's your quarantine going down in Miami? Yeah, it's definitely challenging. I mean, I have three kids, 13, 10, and um, six-year-old, and we're doing online lessons. Thank God we have the internet in a way because, you know, my daughters can talk to their teachers back in Italy. And my oldest daughter, 20, they're, they're doing classes online, but because of the time change, she has to do it at like three in the morning because that's nine in Italy. So she's like, you know, doing a full trooper, you know, she, she gets up at two and then she watches the class and takes it out and then she goes back to bed. So, you know, we all have to adapt. I'm, I'm really proud of them. I mean, we're doing the best we can. And I, obviously, it's, as we were talking before, the beach, you know, I live in Miami Beach and it's just crazy to go down the beach during the middle of the spring break and, and not see anybody. I mean, it's definitely eerie. But generally, people are staying pretty well behaved. I mean, we're obviously the stores are crowded and things like that, but it seems like the supplies are, you know, the relieving as far as restocking the stores is going well. And generally people are trying to make the best of it. Well, the most important thing, Mike, is do you have stocked up toilet paper? I had to go to the bodega <laughs> and get the kind that kind of makes your ass bleed. Uh, so essentially they were out of Charmin, but are you stocked up? Are you one of those toilet paper hoarders? Dude, I got to tell you something. That, that is the most bizarre. Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, I would grab, like, two boxes of protein bars before I grab extra toilet paper. You know, like, if there is going to be, you know, if this thing is going to be, like, where we actually stop, like, toilet paper is not going to save your life. And I live in Europe now, so, like, you have to learn how to use it for day over there. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And we'll just leave it at that. Like, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't get the whole toilet paper thing. Like, what the heck? I mean... I, I don't know. What a, maybe it's a diet thing, and I guess we'll just leave it there because we can unfortunately go down a bad road with this, you know? I know there's no shortage for you, Mike, of wine, though. You are a big wine guy. Are you sipping on Sauvignon Blanc? What, what are you sipping on over there? Well, that's funny you said that because I started thinking, I just said, wait a minute, I'm just going to start going for it and start cracking into my, my deep collection. And some of the stuff is like 80s French, which, which basically is hitting its peak right now. So, yeah, you, that's a good point. I'm like going, you know what? Uh, it makes you reassess everything. And I'm like going, hey, I'm not going to, unfortunately, if something happens to me, I'm not going to let everyone else drink my wine. So I'm crushing all my uh, my vintage bottles right now. I'm like, you know what? Now, now is better, no better time than the present to, 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 to start cracking some vino. I picked up a couple of bottles, I will say, to one of the few liquor stores that was open. It was deemed an essential business here in New York, and thank God uh, for Cuomo and everyone for considering uh, alcohol an essential business during these troubling times. We, we <laughs> talked before before we started, Mike, about you and your idea for baseball moving forward. Before we get into Mets and your incredible career, we don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be a 100-game season? Is it going to be a half of a season? What is your proposal to baseball to try and change the season, how many games, and your playoff system and all that? Okay, here's my proposal, and we talked. I don't want any nasty things on Twitter. Like that's ridiculous. I don't want MLB to send out a hit squad on me because I'm shortening the playoffs. But I was just thinking of this because, and this comes from a story that before the 2000 series, Bobby Valentine says to me, "Hey, come to my office." It was like five minutes before we were going out for the introduction, and I go into Bobby's office, and Yogi Berra's in there, and he goes, "Hey, Mike, how you doing?" I go, "Hey, Yogi, how you doing?" And we just started talking. I mean, we—I was almost late to get out to the field because we started talking, and I said, "Man, you guys!" Like we went through the wild card and the and the LCS and, or the division series and the obviously the championship series, the league series. He said, man, he goes, back when I played, he goes, we'd have the season. He goes, it would be over 
the end of October. He goes, winner of the National League and the American League with the best record would play. He goes, we'd be home October 8th if it went seven games, you know? So that was my idea. I was like, you know what? Scrap the playoffs, do as many games as possible. Hopefully they can get 150. And the best record in the American League and the National League plays for the World Series. How's that? That's not bad. I, I think, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And for some, most people, usually that's where the breaking point is for people. You get into 100 games and it's like, all right, enough already. The wild card has made it exciting. And so teams that are on that cusp can kind of sneak in. But I think special circumstances call for some special measures. And that's a throwback to those old teams. And uh, shout out to Yogi, especially. I mean, when it comes from that mind, you kind of sit up and listen, right? Yeah. And I just thought it was interesting. And I think obviously with the extended playoffs, I mean, the playoffs is almost like another spring training. You know, it's like going up until October or Halloween. And I think the one year with the Yankees played in November. And then there was a concerted effort to get the season over by Halloween. So in this situation, and again, hey, I'm open to discussion. I just thought it'd be fun to say, because at this point, to me, it's about the amount of games during the season. And it could be, like I said, like a throwback thing where you just have the best record in the National League, the American League. And one year, guess what? We just have to kind of basically deal with it and say, okay, you know, let's just get to as many games as possible and try to get a champion from each league and do it that way. Just a thought. I'm open to suggestions. I'm on, I'm on board <laughs> with it. Or maybe you do one playoff round, like just a championship series and then the World Series to give a couple of teams sure. uh, a chance. I think that would make sense. I think a couple of series with all the off days, we'll end up playing till. I mean, it'll be Christmas and Game 7 of the World Series will be going on. So <laughs> know, we'll, we'll be at Thanksgiving dinner, half half a turkey leg. We got one TV on football and the other TV on the World Series. Uh, and we'll have to move all the games from the north. Of course, they'll all have to be played, you know, south of like Atlanta. So that would be interesting. Maybe take the World Series like uh, the Super Bowl. Maybe do it like, you know, in Miami here and then just do it that way too. Who knows? It'll be the most building, sorry to Marlins fans, the most people in the building in uh, Marlins Stadium <laughs> ever. Uh, they'd fill that thing for the first time uh, of all time uh, down in Miami. Mike Piazza joining us. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Piazza 31 Do you ever think, Mike, to people like me who was – my bar mitzvah tables were my favorite players, and my my table was the Mike Piazza table. So I'm sorry to age you a little bit because I know that might, but this was 2004. You were the Mike Piazza table. You were a staple for so many Mets fans my age and older as, you know, that era of Mets baseball where, you know, you didn't win a World Series, but you, you made a World Series. You had the NLCS, the 99. You had the 9-11 moment. You had all those moments there. Do you pinch yourself thinking about that that you are the face of the Mets franchise and you are the voice of the Mets franchise it's a big responsibility to hold but it's got to be one I would imagine that you are truly honored by well without question and the fact of people and I wrote a book you mentioned my book it's very interesting that people want to if they want to revisit the history there I mean I spelled it out very quickly I mean coming to New York with high expectations struggling a little bit it wasn't like I was struggling putting a bat on the ball I just wasn't getting the big hits and and the hits that people expected out of me I mean the clutch hits I was pressing in those situations and it wasn't delivering and we weren't playing that well the first few weeks uh, that I arrived and then of course you know started hearing the booze and basically taking that situation which, which could have been really frustrating and funneling that and making that a positive and saying you know what I got to stop feeling sorry for myself and I got to get my ass in gear and I got to do what I can to help this ball club and the one thing I've said many times is you know the the teammates that I have and Nelson can speak to this I mean it's yeah I was the guy who was expected to get the big hit I was the guy expected to hit the home runs and drive in the big runs but you have to have a team around you and guys in your corner and guys keeping you honest and, 
and, you know, busting your chops and finding a way to get you going. Uh, and that to me is the great memories, the teammates and the guys that were in my corner, even when I was struggling and were patting me on the back saying, hey, man, you're going you're gonna to be fine. Don't worry about it. And then eventually turning that around and being embraced by the fans was something for me that it's such such the, the biggest honor of my life, obviously my career, but also my life. And returning to New York and having the support that I have from the fans is just something that uh, I'll always cherish and something I'll never take lightly. Listen, I, I still remember the speech at City Field, old Mikey up number 31 up there, look for some inspiration. And fans do and the players do. And, and you you hold a dear place for us, uh, former players as well, because you've kind of carried that torch and you put the mantle on your back with the going in as a New York Met. Um, one of the things that I get to talk about is facing you. And you were that guy in the lineup that it was game strategy. Don't let them beat you. I'd rather have Shinjo hitting in the Parker. I'd rather have anybody else. <laughs> Let, let somebody else in that lineup try to beat you because if you give him an opportunity, Piazza has a chance to come through. Uh, Todd Pratt was a guy I came up with uh, when I was in Philadelphia, and he would drive Pat Burrell crazy in batting practice because Burrell could hit the ball a long way, and he would just scoff at him and laugh and go, ain't like the big man. And Pat didn't know who he was talking about at first. He goes, oh, the big man. You don't know who Mike Piazza is. He goes, bro, let me point to you some areas where he used to leave balls on the regular, and he'd try to hit him opposite field. he tried try to try to keep up pace with you was which was impossible because you're Paul Bunyan like strength. I just looked it up on baseball reference. It said you were 6'3, 200 pounds. Yeah, when was that in high school? There was no shot that you were yeah, 6'3, yeah, that's true. No shot, but uh, having said that, I, I want to say you're welcome because the three for six and two RBIs off me hopefully put you over the edge for the Hall of Fame. And uh, I, I'm just glad that I kept you in the yard. So I take that accomplishment with me in my career. Having to be the guy, Edgardo Alfonso actually gave you a shout out in our very first show. And he wanted to thank you. And he said he often thanked you for taking that pressure off of him. He didn't have to be the main guy in the lineup. And he could kind of be that sneaky guy that would really you know spoil the day because he was that opposite field hitter. They weren't shifting back then but then all of a sudden hey to avoid Mikey we got to give this guy something to hit and he had a chance to come through well you make a great point and I felt the same way it was definitely mutual between Fonzie and I I mean the home run where I hit the three-run home run is a 10-run inning against the Braves Fonzie had a great two-strike hit uh, against Terry Mulholland and Mulholland with that hard cutter you know coming down and in on your hand and he threw it down over the plate and Fonzie dribbled it into left field and I remember when that ball went in uh, the outfield and we ended up tying the game there I said to myself I got no pressure now now I'm like the weight was off my back because we tied the game watching that and then getting into the box I'm like no just stay loose and just put the barrel on it and I was able to pull my hands in and hit a goat rope down the left field line and keep it fair it had a little bit of the Carlton Fist type of vibe which was one of my biggest moments that one of the most exciting moments and usually as you know I mean I've always tried to stay very business-like and very serious. I, I wasn't the guy who was like raising my hands and doing uh, you know a tremendous amount of uh, emotional showing on the field. But that was the one part of you know one of the only moments where I basically had to pump it because I was just so pumped when that ball went out. And so yeah, Fonzie, um, just just watching him too and hitting in front of him. I mean, I watched him go six for six one day in the dome, and it was just <laughs> he was hitting lasers all over the field. And then coming up with guys on base. I mean, you know, as a pitcher, it's a, it's a whole different situation facing a guy like me or Fonzie two outs and nobody on or you know one out nobody on and, and then first and second no out you know it's like you know that you got to make the quality pitches and you got to locate 
you make one mistake, it could it could mean the game. Absolutely. And uh, another aspect of it, I think I spoken to Mookie Wilson about this several times. And Mookie said ever since that game in 86, people come up to him and Shea Stadium only held about, you know, 70,000 people max. He's met 2.5 million people who were actually at that game because everybody <laughs> always comes up. So that 9-11 home run, how many people have you met that tell you they were actually at that game? Well, many many and and the ones that weren't there you know were definitely their spirit so that that's true i mean it's just something again that we've talked many times about and and it's really difficult for me to put it in perspective and when people honor me and tell me how much that home run meant to them and just that game in general just being there in general just being together is something you can't you can't describe i mean it's as i said i'm a man of faith and i just thank god that i was in the right place at the right time and i had people pulling for me and i believed in my and I was able to execute a, a, a good swing under a situation that emotionally for everyone was just, I mean, it was terrorizing. It was just, we had so many, that spectrum, you know, anger, pain, despair, frustration, you know, what are we doing? Kind of looking at yourself saying, what, what, what is life all about? I mean, what, what is, is it a baseball game? Is it not a baseball game? So um, to have everything fall in place and to see the love in the stadium and to have that, that memory and at least having a small sort of sign of getting back to, to life and, and moving on as difficult as it was is definitely a, a, a memory which I can't describe. And we try to use for inspiration and we hope that that situation will help us pull together through this time and, and get us through this situation and we can move on and, and be appreciative of what we have. And John Franco talked about that last week, how he still gets you know goosebumps thinking about that. I know when we watch the highlights, you still had the, the hair on your, on your skin go up when you see those highlights. And you talked about that June. See, I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. I don't remember the name of the last girl I went on a date with, but I remember June 30th, 2000, and the 10-run inning that you capped off with a three-run homer. It was 8-1 that game, going to the bottom of the eighth. I was at a Chinese food place in Connecticut. It was 8-1. I'm listening on my Walkman. I, I remember this. It's crazy that I remember these things. Uh, and then I come home, and I'm screaming because I wake my brother up. I wake my mom up. Uh, you have the comeback. That inning was magical. A game that I was at, I don't know if you remember this game, Mike, 2001 versus the Yankees. You hit a two-run homer after Shinjo slid head first in a first base and got hurt Timo Perez had a pinch run for him you came up and hit a homer that went into Q Gardens like it went way over the bleachers it was into another area code and that was another special moment that you had in your career did it feel weird after all those memories with the Mets when it was time to go when you were a free agent what was going through your head at that time of I want to be back but I think it's time for the next step I don't know if I'm still going to catch move to first base there must have been a thousand things going through your mind when you know 2005 was over and the Mets time was over that's a great point. Um, it was a it was a very difficult time, obviously in my career and then in my life. Because truth be told, I could have put some pressure on the Mets and said, "Look, I mean, I unfortunately had um, you know Willie was the Willie Randolph was the manager, and I like Willie; he's a really nice guy. But obviously, I don't think he kind of saw me in his plan uh, as a manager, and I don't. I just didn't feel like maybe he believed in me as much at at that time that I can." sort of contribute to the team which is fine you know again we all every manager is different they all have their guys and and whatever the case may be as a player you have to live with it and you have to adapt and so 
but truth be told, I could have said, hey, I want to stay here and I want to be the backup to, I think they acquired Paul LaDuca. And I said, I'll be happy doing this and that. But I just knew it was going to be very uncomfortable. And I didn't think it would be, I just didn't think it would be best for the team. So we kind of mutually agreed to say, look, it's it's just time time to turn the page. And, and again, personally, playing eight years in New York with everything that I had went through, it takes its toll. It takes its toll on your body. It takes its toll on your, your emotions. So I just felt like we had a really nice uh, mutual understanding that it was just time to move on. And I, I played a year in San Diego and it was, it was a great year. I had a lot of fun. You know, I was living on the beach, um, kind of like my flashback days to, to the Dodgers, you know, living in Manhattan Beach. I mean, I'm living in Bird Rock and great team. You know, we had Trevor Hoffman and Brian Giles and these guys. And just it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I played with Vinny Castilla and, you know, guys that I've always played against. So as much as it was heartbreaking to leave the team, it was a, it was a really fun situation to play in San Diego that year. And it was just something that you have to try to find a positive out of a negative. And that's the story of my life and the story of my career. So I try to tell that to people when I speak. So true. And I think that's one of the things that I always look for an inspiration. I mean, as a 30th rounder, just getting to the major leaguers, the major leagues was a very difficult task. Staying in the major leagues proved to be even more difficult um, for you to go on and achieve the success you did was uh, unrivaled. I just like to think of when you hit that home run against Pedro, first home run against Pedro, when you came back in a San Diego uniform, everybody always talks about you. Everybody always talks about you and uh, the pitcher that you face and you talk about Clemens. Was there something with you and Pedro? Because uh, there's always been, I think, uh, something for Pedro to always want to beat the best, you know, to be the best, you want to beat the best. And he kind of that wanted to get after you a little bit. True. I mean, Pedro and I have a long history. I mean, I caught Pedro Martinez before he even came to the United States. When I first signed with the Dodgers, I went down to Campo Las Palmas in the Dominican Republic, which is just outside of Santo Domingo for uh, the offseason down there, to get ba- uh, which was their winter league, to get some experience behind the plate because I had never caught before. So the, Tommy said, you know what? He called Ralph Avila, who was the Dominican director for the Dodgers and their scout at the time, said, I want Mike to get down there and catch a little bit. So it was an amazing experience for me going down there, learning Spanish, knowing how to you know communicate with the, with the Latin pitchers and the Dominican guys. But one day they're like, oh, this, this little guy is going to throw. And I'm like, looking at this dude and I'm like going who is this guy I mean, he's a little you know he's he's not very tall and then he got on the mound and started throwing and I was like what the hell I couldn't believe how hard he threw for a little dude <laughs> and then of course the Dodgers then brought him to the States he was fast-tracked I played with him in in uh, Bakersfield for a few months and then they moved him right up to AAA so uh, then I caught him in AAA and then he went to the big leagues. I went to the big leagues. He was our setup guy, if you could believe that. In 1993, Todd Worrell was our closer. Pedro Martinez was our setup guy. Then they traded him because they thought that he couldn't start because he'd be too fragile or he was too small, which obviously is one of the biggest mistakes the Dodgers ever made. But, you know, I think it was in 98 uh, when I first got to the Mets and he plunked me. He almost kind of broke my hand. You know, I see Pedro today and we hug and, you know, you know, no, so you know that when you get on the field, sometimes, you know, I always say, if you can't get along, you got to get it on and you got to, you got to get out there and get after it. And you may not like me and I may not like you, but we both have a job to do. And um, on the field, you know, I have to always find a way to motivate myself. And sometimes, you know, not liking the guy personally uh, was a way to get me motivated and fired up to want to wanna beat him. Absolutely. And, and that's one of what competition's all about. The seven-day period with the Marlins, were you stunned that the Dodgers dealt you that way? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a... Um, 
one of the more bizarre moments I think in in any in baseball in general. And and again, I had a contract issue with the, with the Dodgers. We weren't getting an extension. That the the sentiment was turning very negative very quickly. Um, and I was just banking on the fact that they couldn't trade me or they couldn't get value for me. But then of course the Marlins, who had won the World Series the year before, were basically dismantling a World Series team, a World Series champion. So the Dodgers felt like they could obviously get value or at least show to the fans, well, we got four for Mike and and it is what it is. Uh, and I was in Florida for about 10 days. I played for Jim Leland, who's an amazing guy, an amazing manager. And he fired me up too. He was like, Mike, I don't know what's going on, but you deserve your money. You're going to get your money. Just hang in there and, um, you know, we'll get you out of here as soon as possible. And so, uh, as I mentioned, going through that difficult time, getting traded from the Dodgers and going to the Marlins was, was something that I was starting to think about, you know, do I make a mistake? Do I need to go back to LA? But then at the end of the day, I said, you know what, I got to be open for this challenge. And the people that helped me in that tough time, you know, I'll never definitely forget. One of the guys that we talked to when we were preparing for today's show, I reached out to Preston Wilson himself to see if he had any funny stories. And one thing that he said was he was always told he was untouchable as, you know, uh, stepson of Mookie Wilson coming up. He was a bright star in the game. And then they told him, uh, we were offered Mike Piazza and they want you in the trade. And all of a sudden he realized he was very, very expendable when he had a chance to get Mike Piazza at the prime of his career. So Preston uh, wanted to say hello and, and talk about that memory of how quickly things changed for you when you went from the Marlins to the Mets. And, you know, a lot of times prospects are hyped up and thrown into these trades and then you have a proven commodity like yourself. And that's where you got to kind of rely heavily is go for the proven commodity. And hey, if the prospects pan out, good for them. But they got Mike Piazza, future Hall of Famer in that deal. Yeah. And you mentioned, I, lo I love Preston. And, you know, he actually had a really nice career with, with the Marlins. Played really well. He played well against us. You know, that time from 98, 99, we were trying to obviously win the division and get to the World Series. And the Marlins were one of the main thorns in our side because they had gotten these young players like Preston, Derek Lee, guys that are really <laughs> outstanding players. So when we played them in September, we were like, oh boy, you know, this is not going to be easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I tell people all the time, unless it's in writing, you know, I don't, I don't really believe anything. It's written down and signed it. So when someone tells you, like, you know, they had to joke in hockey. I mean, I'm close with some hockey guys going, if you want to get traded, buy a house in the city you're playing in. You know, that's, that's <laughs> a kiss of death. So uh, I tell players all the time, it is a business. You have to understand that you're you're a commodity, and and unfortunately, relationships sometimes are strained. But as I said, if you always maintain a good, you always maintain a positive attitude, and and look as situations as as a new adventure and a challenge, and your attitude is positive, you you can get through it. You really can. So apparently, you would play air guitars and you would play air drums. And John Franco said this to Figgy: uh, you would do this on the plane ride with your headphones on. So. We, we actually got a voicemail from someone who makes our the beat for our song. So I want you to listen in and react to this voicemail. Okay. Hey, Jake. It's Static, the co-composer of your theme song. So I know you got Mr. Mike Piazza on, and I do have a funny, cool, nice story about him. Um, mind you, I'm a musician who knows nothing about sports. I used to work in a music store called Victor's House of Music in Paramus, New Jersey, in the early 2000s, late 90s. 
And this really cool, nice guy came to our guitar department, had amazing taste in guitars, picked out some cool guitars, bought great guitars. And we were just like, wow, what a hell of a guy. Until someone in the office came running out and was like, do you realize who's in your guitar department? Like, that's the catcher from the Mets. That's Mike Piazza. We're like, okay, he likes cool guitars. So from that point on, he came to the store often. I feel like he might have liked us because we never talked baseball, but we always talked guitars. Anyway, hope you're well, Mike. Can you recall the memories from this guitar shop, Mike? Absolutely. And I remember the guitars I bought. I bought a Les Paul Jr. I bought a Paul Reed Smith bass. And I think I bought I think I think bought a Strat there as well. And the, the funny thing about it is usually my guitars I end up gifting to friends of mine. Like if you play guitar, you want to be my friend because I'll try to play guitar and then I'll say, you know what? I suck. I can't play guitar. <laughs> I mean, I, I keep a couple around just to do, do some riffs on and I have a Marshall stack just to kind of get that grind and that uh, distortion tone and stuff, but I can't play at all. I play more drums. So on my Instagram, you'll see I play drums uh, and I got some lessons from really good drummers when I was with the Dodgers. So I could kind of get myself around a drum kit more than a guitar, but I love music. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just uh, as much as I can't play, I still like to plug it in and, and hear that crunch, you know, hear that tone. And I, I could fake a few songs, you know, for fun. But to me, my love of music has been something I've always enjoyed. So if you weren't a big league catcher, you would not have been the drummer in the Red Hot Chili Peppers is what you're telling me. Um, well, I don't know about the Chili Peppers because Chad Smith's a really good drummer. I don't know if I have. He's really funky. He's got some really nice grooves. Um, I probably could have cut it with like a band that didn't have a lot of musical talent. <laughs> You know, and as a, as a, as a band, you know, some guys are, you know, it's crazy. Music is like baseball in a way, but maybe Nelson will tell you this. I mean, you've seen guys with a tremendous amount of talent that never made it. And then you see guys that don't have a lot of talent that have charisma or they have that rock star attitude and they just have this persona that people gravitate towards. So those are the guys. And, and again, you know, you, that's life. Unfortunately, you, you're given tools and, and you have to refine them as best you can. But, but I tell people all the time, it's like life is not fair. Just because you have the talent doesn't mean you're going to make it. Just because you can play doesn't mean you're going to make it. You have to have everything come together, or at least a lot of things come together. So, but in the meantime, I, I have it as a hobby. It's a lot of fun for me. And uh, as my kids know, when I sing in the car, that I love music, even though it uh, can almost break the windows in there. But, you know, we do the best we can. It's it's all about fun. We won't ask you to sing Imagine, like that viral video that, you know, a lot of people were uh, hating on. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> I did. I don't like to make fun of people who are, but that was, yeah, that was horrible. I was like, oh, boy. Uh, for effort. Use yeah. for effort. Uh, yeah, no, you know, that's the best thing about the internet is you can turn it off. You can say, okay, enough. <laughs> Without a doubt. That rock star mentality, of course, is what helped you thrive throughout your career and perform under pressure in those biggest moments in front of big crowds. You know, that's just having that greatest set of all time for yourself. Everybody kind of refers to you as the greatest offensive catcher. Does that bother you? Because, uh, or do you take offense to the offensive catcher thing? And who would be the one pitcher you would have loved to have caught? Do I take offense? No, I don't take offense. But I tell people all the time, I mean, I'll be the first to say that as a catcher, when you go out and you catch 130 games a year and you're expected to hit 35 and 100 RBIs, 35 home runs, and 100, you're going to have those aches and pains. And you may not be the most prolific catcher defensively. But as Nelson will tell you, I mean, catching, yes, throwing is important. But as a pitcher, you want a catcher that is going to be able to know the hitters, locate his body in a 
place that's going to give him a good target, get him into a rhythm, allow him not to want to think pitches or overthink the situation, blocking pitches. He wants to be able to bounce that two-strike pitch with the winning run or the tying run third. And I thought I brought all those things to the table. I loved it. I love catching pop-ups. I loved running the defense, kind of moving guys around a little bit. I loved interaction with the pitchers. I loved going over scouting reports. So, yeah, maybe I didn't throw as well as Yachty or, or some or Benito Santiago, you know, which was one of my contemporaries who I really loved. But, again, you know, there's other parts to, to catching that are probably just as important. It's not more important than throwing guys out. And, you know, Nelson will tell you, I mean, you can't steal first base. So I was fortunate to have, I think, seven teams that I caught on a daily basis that led the league in the, in the ERA. That was something I took a lot of pride in. And, you know, <laughs> Tom Candiotti, I told the story in my Hall of Fame speech. He's a knuckleballer, my rookie here at the Dodgers. And he said, hey, dude, I don't care if you ever throw a guy out. He goes, go out and hit me a three-run home run. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I played in a few all-star games. So I caught the Smoltzes and the Glavins and the Maddoxes and um, Randy Johnson and Kurt Schillings and, and Pedros. And, I mean, look, I caught a bunch of Hall of Famers. So can I break it down the one? I don't really think so. I you know, this sounds weird. I hope this doesn't sound too like, oh, shucks, man. But I really enjoyed getting a guy who wasn't a Hall of Famer through a tough inning or a tough game. I mean, I caught this kid, you made Clay Hensley, and I caught him with San Diego. And he's still relatively young. He had bases loaded and no outs. And I said, dude, I said, here's the deal. I said, in this league, it's not what you could put on a pitch. It's what you can take off the pitch. I said, so you have to have confidence in your in your off speed. And I said, right here, we're just gonna we're gonna contain the damage. I said, if we get a ground ball or if we get one run out of, I said, be realistic. You're not gonna strike out the side in the major leagues with bases loaded, no outs. I go, let's try to get one get one run across and get out of this inning with one, with very low damage. Well, what happens? He throws a really soft slider, takes some guy, pops it up. Next pitch, sinker, double play, no run. So those situations stick out in my mind and I know it sounds a little like okay not as exciting as catching a hall of famer but that was the most the part of my job I enjoyed the most uh, I thank you for it because I was one of those guys that needed that kind of guidance Mike thank you so much for Mike today. really appreciate the time and make sure you check out his book long shot and you know I know you're in the business of car dealing in Philly so let's hope everything yep. get picks back up here you got Italy world baseball classic next year yeah um, and Mike will hopefully check with you and we'll see you at City Field hopefully at some point this summer once this pandemic is over and people are back in the seats we hope to see you at the game and talk to you later in the year Thanks, guys. God bless, man. I really enjoyed it. Take care, okay? And that's a wrap for Episode 3 of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to you, Jake, for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If using Apple, rate us five stars and write a nice review. For my co-host, Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. Stay safe, stay inside, wash your hands, stay quarantined, and we'll talk to you all next Monday.